0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Towards Data Science podcast. My name is Jeremy, and I'm on the team over at the Sharpest Minds Data Science Mentorship Program. Now, in the early 1900s, a lot of our predictions were the direct product of the human brain. Scientists, analysts, climatologists, mathematicians, bankers, lawyers, politicians, they all did their best to anticipate future events and plan accordingly. To take just one example, think of physics, where every single task we currently think of as being part of the learning process from data collection to data cleaning, feature selection, modeling, all that stuff, it all happens inside a physicist's head. So when Einstein, for example, introduced gravitational fields, what he was really doing was proposing a new feature to be added to our model of the universe. And the gravitational field equations that he put forward at the same time were an update to the very model that those features would then be used in. Einstein didn't come up with his model by running model.fit in a Jupyter notebook. He never outsourced any of the computations that he needed to develop any of his algorithms, any of his laws of physics, in other words, to machines. Now today, that's actually somewhat unusual. Most of the predictions that the world runs on are generated in part by computers, but only in part. Until we have fully general artificial intelligence, machine learning is always going to be a mix of two things. First, the constraints that human developers impose on their models. And second, the calculations that go into optimizing those models, which we can outsource to machines. Now, the human touch is still a necessary and ubiquitous component of every machine learning pipeline, but it's ultimately limiting. The more of the machine learning pipeline that can be outsourced to machines, the more we can take advantage of computers' ability to learn faster and from far more data than human beings. But designing algorithms that are flexible enough to do that requires some serious out-of-the-box thinking. And that's exactly the kind of thinking that University of Toronto professor and researcher David Duvenaugh specializes in. So I've got David Duvenaugh joining me for today's episode. I'm really excited. We're going to be talking about everything from machine learning philosophy to generative models and explainable AI. So I'm really looking forward to diving into this one. David, thanks so much for joining us for the podcast. Oh, my pleasure. Well, really happy to have you here. We had you on the podcast before, actually, and I think you're our first returning guest, if I'm not wrong. I I definitely recommend that folks uh, who are tuning in for this one check out that episode, because we covered a lot of interesting topics. Um, we covered uh, the frequentist versus Bayesian age-old debate, among other things. But um, just by way of background, for people who haven't heard that episode before, of course, you're a machine learning prof at the University of Toronto, uh, you did your postdoc at Harvard, you spent time working at Google, and you even have your own consulting firm, in Venia. There are a couple of topics that we really wanted to hit today that we didn't get the chance to cover on our last podcast, and I'd like to start with one that's maybe a bit more at the cutting edge of things, and that's this idea of automatic differentiation, uh, some of the activity we're seeing with programming languages and deep learning, um, maybe we can start with the basics here so what is auto differentiation
1: oh sure so automatic differentiation just refers to um, the process by which you write down a function and the machine comp- computes another function that gives you its uh, derivative like its uh, its rate of change with respect to, uh, of its output with respect to its input
0: so if we contrast that for example with like back propagation this would be just a, a more general kind of back propagation or backpropagation is a special case oh
1: that's a great Question: I think backpropagation hasn't been in most discussions, but the general consensus among auto diff people is, to, or the way they usually frame it, is that backpropagation is refers to a particular way of doing automatic differentiation, and specifically, it's called reverse mode automatic differentiation, and it's much more time efficient for large uh, models than forward mode differentiation.
0: And so, um, okay, so it's a, it's a subclass essentially then of uh, automatic differentiation, is that sort of fair to say? Yeah,
1: well, the problem is that the original uh, discussion of path propagation was as an entire learning algorithm, right? And the papers from like Rumelhart and Hinton were saying, how do we update weights? And uh, today we kind of separate these two things that we say, okay, uh, a learning al- like a gradient based learning algorithm, number one, computes gradients, and then number two, feeds that to an optimizer that decides how to change the weights. So this is part of the reason for the confusion is that um, backpropagation can refer to the entire learning algorithm or it can refer to just the part that confuses the gradients.
0: Okay, okay. So the, yeah, the weight update is kind of like the separate ingredient. It's what you do with the gradients afterwards that, that makes it... Uh, backpropagation. Exactly. And you
1: don't have to move in the direction of the gradient. You can rescale it. Um, and for instance, like the popular Atom Optimizer says, oh, well, let's scale the uh, direction we move in by the variance of the gradients. Right.
0: Great. With that that background, I think that's really useful. Obviously, you know, automatic differentiation has immediate applications in machine learning. Um, but one of the things that I think you've talked about uh, a bit and we were discussing just before we started the uh, the podcast here was this idea that different programming languages make automatic differentiation a more natural fit or a less natural fit, and that can sort of bias the way that, that we end up using them and, in turn, the innovations that we come up with on the deep learning side. Um, do you mind sort of exploring that topic a little
1: bit? Sure. So for most of its history, uh, machine learning as a field was kind of limited by the fact that you know, most scalable learning algorithms require gradients, and most gradients were derived by hand. And so, for instance, when I was a PhD student um, in Cambridge, the guy who sat next to me, Andrew McCutcheon, spent at least half of his time during his PhD, I'd say, working out and coding up gradients for Gaussian processes. And basically, for every possible quantity you might want to optimize, he would write down the gradient of that quantity with respect to some aspect of the model. And there was you know, maybe like 20 or 30 of these, and each one was a mathematical puzzle that then you had to worry about how to implement efficiently and then uh, check that it was correct. Um, Or for instance, major machine learning uh, packages at the time were just writing, like built with code for custom gradients. Um, And actually I was just uh, talking to Jeff Hinton the other day and he was saying that You know, this used to be kind of almost a good thing in that it forced people to keep their models simple because if they wrote a complicated model, they'd have to write. But it also massively slows down the pace of experimentation, and it also stops you from being able to automatically explore a model space. So, I mean, it's kind of now cruel to think about how this poor guy spent so much time writing gradients. And in fact, you know, I spent a lot of time on this, but basically everyone did. Um, And it's it's like, uh, you know, thinking of like a poor kid, like, you know, mining coal by hand or whatever, and then someone invents a machine to do it. And it's like, oh... It was never really necessary we just hadn't built the technology yet and now it's like inhumane it's like you know when we used to have human computers it's um it's just not a good use of human intellect um and the crazy thing though is that you know we were working in matlab and it wasn't as if automatic deputation hadn't been already invented 30 or 40 years ago so there was in the physical sciences like in fortran there exists these tools they could automatically differentiate like pretty complicated FORTRAN code. Um, and by doing like source to source transformation, like they basically would slurp in the source code and then reverse all the loops and do all the transformations automatically and give you something that efficiently computed your gradients. New code that would officially compute your gradients. Yeah, and they were pretty sophisticated.
0: Oh, I didn't know that about FORTRAN.
1: Yeah, I mean, the thing is that the, I think the software ecosystem was not nearly developed. Some of them were closed source. Some of them were pretty fiddly. And the hard thing is that, you know, most of these systems were somewhat limited in the types of code that they could transform. And so for instance, if you have like complicated uh, if statements, or um, sometimes you can end up with like loop conditions or um, like basically you would have to restrict yourself to a sort of simple version of the language that you were writing in. Anyway, the point is that these tools and the math behind these were, you know, mostly entirely worked out pretty early on. And then we kind of went through a little dark ages at the beginning of the field of machine learning. Um, back when everyone used MATLAB and then again when everyone started using GPUs uh, when we didn't have good autodiff tools.
0: So the, uh, the, the libraries, the languages, the tooling that we use really serve to bias us in specific directions when it comes to which algorithms we end up developing, which strategies we explore. Um, this is... Potentially, I guess creating vacuums in various places right where things ideas that should have been explored by now really happen
1: Yeah, I'll say that people made a huge so when the initial autodiff uh, Frameworks came to machine learning like piano was a big one um, It was relatively straightforward to train, you know big classifiers with them like things that had a very simple structure uh, No, like, you know adding loops was kind of a little tricky, but that was added like for recurrent neural networks um, and then pretty soon, you know, researchers started to realize that if they wanted to do something a little bit off, off off-piece, like a little bit out out there, they would almost always end up fighting their tools. Uh, In fact, me and a few people in, let's say, 2015 to like, even like 2018, had a big advantage in terms of being able to do research in that there was this nice package that was mainly written by uh, Dougal McLaurin and uh, Matthew Johnson. And I helped sort of write some of the the rules for it, but uh, Autograd was the name of our package. It actually was born in the ashes of a much worse, uh, or rather like more naively architected system that had been uh, initially started by Ryan Adams. And at the time, this was back with, this is when like Theano was the the king. And so um, it was already a step up, this uh, package that no one uses anymore. And it's how we all learned Autodiff is by, or like all the algorithms was by working on Ryan's package when we were um, at Harvard in in the HIPS lab,
0: are there analogous pa- first off are analogous packages necessary in say PyTorch today, or um, or are there packages for it that get explored and then it- what are the use cases where automatic differentiation really really helps? What are some of the significant areas that that's opened up?
1: Yeah, so um, maybe I should give some examples. So, well, first of all, I want to say that the origin of autograd. So, so. It's, it's, it's justice is that Douglas McLaurin read *The Structure and Interpretation of Computer Programs*, which is this like seminal text in computer science that basically outlines the case for functional programming, and sort of Lisp-like languages, and has this very purist style. And I remember Douglas saying to me, like, just sort of sitting on the couch thinking, he's like, David, everything is a function, lists are functions, tuples are functions, um, and he wrote, he he realized that he could rewrite our sort of clunky autodiff system that had been a sort of sh- source of, I don't know, we were chafing at its limitations already. Um, he realized he could rewrite the whole thing to be much simpler and also crucially composable with itself so that you could take the gradient of the gradient and that would just be um, like as hard as taking the gradient of like sine or cosine. Um, and so he sat down and wrote this whole thing in two weeks and um, got it running and dealt with a lot of, like, minor conceptual problems. Suddenly, we had a much more powerful tool than the norm was. And again, you know, equally powerful tools, I think, had existed or, like, not had existed, had been written for other languages already. But in Python, there was no nice way to do sort of this, like, higher order autodiff. Um, and so this immediately sort of freed our minds to, to say, like, wait, we can just take the gradient of anything we can write, pretty much. Um, so and one of the first things we did was, Google started saying like, "Oh, well, what if you know we were talking about taking gradients of the validation loss with respect to um, the parameters of our model for like um, kernel density estimation or something like that." And and Dougal said like, "Well, why don't we just take the gradient of the validation loss with respect to our learning hyperparameters, like through training an entire deep neural network?" So like a kind of meta learning. Right. Exactly. That's what we would call meta learning today. Um, and. You know, your had, uh, you know, proposed doing things like this, you know, a long time ago, as well. And I guess like, I shouldn't say it today because he also called it, I think, meta learning at the time. Um, but I mean, people hadn't, cons- I, I think, uh, people hadn't considered learning through like, you know, the training dynamics for like hundreds of iterations of like huge neural networks um, at that point. Anyway, the point is, I thought it was not going to work. I thought, like, yes, okay. We can certainly compute the gradient, like the software will work. We will be able to compute the, the gradient exactly, but it must, it's I thought it just must be too chaotic of a system for that ever to make sense, and that we would just be basically optimizing like a super wiggly function, in which case the gradient wouldn't tell you about how to make uh, much progress. It would just tell you what all the like local wiggles were. In the setting of meta-learning, where we're trying to say, no, no, I'm gonna take the gradient of the validation loss uh, of my uh, neural network with respect to, like, let's say, the initial conditions of his training, or the learning rate, or something, or its parameterization. Um, the idea is that it's not that we're going to get stuck in local optima. It's that the local gradients will change at a much higher rate than the global structure. So this is hard to. It's really easy to explain with the whiteboard. It's hard by audio, but I'll give it a shot. So imagine if I uh, imagine I'm on top of a huge hill. And uh, like the overall gradient is quite clear in which direction I should go to move up that hill. But then someone has come along and put like little egg cartons down everywhere. Um, And so if I look at the gradient of those egg cartons, they're, um, I mean, there are local minima. but in in high dimensions, that's not really the problem. In high dimensions, it's just the the problem is that the variance of the gradients, or rather the scale of the changing gradients is uh, so tiny. That they don't really tell you what the overall direction of the hill is very reliably so sometimes to climb a tall mountain you have to move through a couple of short valleys yeah but it's more like what if there was jagged rocks everywhere and you were sort of measuring the size of these jagged rocks to say which direction pointed upwards in the mountain yeah they would just be pointing you all over the place and they would be changing so quickly it would be hard to average them so uh, and it turned out actually we did literature um, some an amazing guy breath perlmutter um, who had actually written about this in his thesis. And he had said, and he's one of the early auto-diff pioneers. And he had actually uh, characterized this and found that um, actually sort of me and Dougal were both right in that for high learning rates, when you train a neural network, the dynamics are chaotic, right? And people of sort of like, Elias Hotsky talks about how you, when you're training, you want to be on the edge of chaos. You want to have learning rate as large as it can be, but still have stable, um, still have convergence. Yeah, and so anyway, uh, so Brad Formoda had actually run these experiments to ask like, okay, what does this optimization landscape look like? And what it looks like is, for low learning rates, for small learning rates, it's a nice smooth curve that's very easy to optimize with gradients. Um, And then for at some point, there's a phase transition, and for high learning rates, it becomes this chaotic system for which the gradients just go up and, you know, you know, plus a million and then minus a million, plus a million, um, and it's basically impossible to ever, like the gradient just doesn't help you very much there. And if you and gradients don't help you, then in high dimensions, you just really can't make any progress. Um, The point is that that was one of the early instances where, you know, just being able to take gradients through stuff we had written actually turned out to be sort of more powerful than at least I had thought. Um, And so we wrote this paper. It was called uh, uh, Gradient-Based Hyperparameter Optimization Through Reversible Learning. And we spent a lot of time talking about how, you know, the big problem with this approach is that you need a lot of memory to to store all the steps on the forward path. So you can actually you can actually retrace those uh, steps by running the optimization backwards and having like a few little hints to to correct that. Um anyway, and so this like of course we all have a little bit of schmadeuver in all of us, and I like to think of this as like you know one of the first uh, meta learning papers, although we didn't have the foresight to name it um as sexually as the paper that came out a year later of learning to learn by gradient descent by gradient descent, uh, which you know it's not the same thing, but it's a pretty similar idea. Yeah. And then and then after that paper, there was a like a whole string of papers that we wrote where it was just like, oh, let's take ratings through things that other people have a hard time with because they're using like piano, basically.
0: Right. And and is this like, are there still examples of of like l- languages or frameworks that suffer from this problem or more or less have you know, all the, the main ones anyway, TensorFlow, PyTorch, are, are they all um,
1: up to par now? Yeah, so PyTorch is pretty well architected now, um, and I guess I'll say they. I still hear about TensorFlow not being able to do fancy things, like for instance, uh, yeah, one of the fancy gradient tricks we did was uh, neural ordinary differential equations, where we wrote the gradient for ODE int, right, like the function that solves an ODE, and we expressed that in terms of another call to an ODE whose dynamics are given by the gradient of the function. <laughs> Yeah, the gradient of the dynamics of the original problem. So when you're defining the gradient of your, uh, of ODE, you have to take another gradient inside of there. And so that's just like one example of where composability is important, and where uh, TensorFlow, the way it was architected, just happened not to be able to do that. So you can code up ODE's in TensorFlow, but you have to do that last little bit manually
0: which which uh, fortunately now is changing. I mean, it's nice nice to hear that so many of these languages are starting to become more flexible in that way. And now another area that's gotten a lot of attention, and, and I do want to spend some time talking a little bit about this because I think it's so relevant nowadays especially, is this idea of AI explainability, um, which mm. I think at least everyone's heard of, whether that's in the context of you know debugging neural networks where it's helpful to explain why a particular prediction or output is being rendered, um, or even, you know, in the context of AI ethics, where, you know, sometimes you want to know the rationale behind someone being denied a bank loan. Um, yeah. But you're approaching explainability from a very specific direction, right? Using generative models. Like, can you can you maybe explain, well, first off, what a generative model is and then how they can be used to help with explainability?
1: Sure, sure. So, yeah, um, when I say generative model, I just mean a model that if it's trying to model, like, say, let's say the relationship between some inputs X and some outputs Y, like we do when we do classification where the input uh, x is an image and the output y is a label, Um, generative models typically will also say, let's build a model of the density of x, like let's model the distribution of images. And this will let us do things like regularize uh, our models better, do semi-supervised learning, um, take advantage of partially labeled data sets, and also sort of, as I'm going to argue, explain your models or explain another model's output automatically.
0: Right, okay. And now, what's the? I, I think I can see the, the connection to explainability. I mean, you uh, you referred to this as a way of generating counterfactuals. So essentially, like I guess you know, generating images that could have been or or text that could have been. Can yeah? Can you uh, walk us through what what the application of that is to explainability?
1: Sure. So one thing I want to say is that the standard approaches to explainability usually take the gradient of the X, the output of your function and uh, with respect to the inputs. So these are called saliency maps, which is I think, kind of cheating because you're just calling your answer salient. Um, but um, that that's sort of been like the bread and butter of explanation of say image classifiers. Is you say how would I need to change the pixels so that I uh, you know get uh, change the output label, right? So yeah, so specifically they they talk about like backprop to the inputs, and that, what they mean by that is taking the gradient of the log probability of the class label with respect to all the um, pixel colors. And so, you know, I think most people don't think of this as a counterfactual approach, but I would say gradients are counterfactuals. They're instantaneous counterfactuals. Like, if you think of the definition of a derivative, it's just, um, you know, in English, it is how much would my function output change if I change the input in this direction. So, um, yeah, so I would say we're already using. Counterfactuals as sort of the standard way of explaining almost all of our machine learning methods and I'd say the unsatisfying part about this is that they only ask about instantaneous changes So they don't answer this question of uh, you know, what if this I replaced in this image this seagull with a dog or something, right? That's just something that the gradient isn't going to meaningfully tell you the answer to so that you know, I'm not the only person uh, You know making these arguments, but uh, the point is that gradients are a great starting point uh, to explain the output of our classifiers and they just where they break down is a sometimes the way in which we might have to change an image to make the uh output different is sort of implausible it's like if i have an image of an elephant and then i start changing it to uh turn the, you know turn the elephant into some big massive white noise or something like that it's you know it's not really clear it's not, I I think that's a bad explanation because it's not plausible it's you know So maybe we can talk a little bit about what what maybe it means for something to be an explanation. Yes.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That does seem
1: central to this. Yeah. So I think it is kind of crazy. Like at the beginning of every field, of course, it makes sense that we sort of need to grope around in the dark before we define things and really know what we're talking about. But, you know, I'd say at this point, we should have some more concrete definitions of what an explanation is. And, you know, sometimes I've even asked like job faculty candidates who are doing like human-computer interaction and talk about explainability. And I say, OK, so what is an explanation? Usually they don't really have an answer, except in terms of like it's something that makes the system more useful to a user, which I think, you know, okay, I'm, I'm in favor of usability, but uh, we need to be something more specific. So I'm pretty sure that there's philosophy that's covered all this. Um, my favorite definition is just that the explanation of why something is true can be answered by saying what needs to be different for that not to be true. In particular, I want to make a, a strong claim, which is that pretty much anytime someone asks, why is X true, we could rewrite their question without changing the meaning to what would need to be different uh, in order for X not to be true. Interesting. I'm trying to think of counterexamples here,
0: and it's not immediately obvious. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, and I'll, I'll give an example. So, if someone says, oh, why wasn't I allowed on the roller coaster? Someone would say, because you're not tall enough. And, you know, we can think of the first person having asked, like, oh, what would have needed to be different for me to be able to ride the roller coaster?
0: And so, so okay, this is, this is interesting. Maybe this is sort of more on the philosophical side. But so this argues, though, that an explanation really is a list. No, not a list of, of facts that or, or situations that would not meet the criteria. It's actually more like the rule that generates that list.
1: Well, so I, I think that's a great point. So I think we can... So first of all, there, these explanations aren't unique. Yeah, as you say, there's many, many things that could be different. In fact, like innumerably many things that could have been different in any situation pretty much that would have made that be true, right? Like another good ax- you know, why wasn't I out on the roller coaster? Oh, because, you know, they made the rules so that you have to be this high. If they changed the rule, you might have been able to ride on the roller coaster. Right, right. So in as you say, you can equivalently express either like a giant endless set, but that's kind of... Long way to talk about these things, yeah. so, but sometimes you can summarize this in a rule and say, "Here's the rule that generates this set," and that's a much more concise way of um, conveying this set. And that rule itself—I mean, I, I guess you keep going down the
0: rabbit hole, but I guess there, there are there are meta rules and meta rules piled on top of each other that take you all the way down, sort of turtles all the way down, so to speak. Uh, is, is there is there a sense in which there's um, a philosophically satisfying cap to the depth of that that logical structure?
1: Uh, I don't think so. I think So yeah, I, I think that this definition is, is pretty useful or pretty handy, but it doesn't really tell us how to prioritize these explanations. Right. So all I can say is any one of these innumerable things would count as an explanation. Now we have to go back again and talk about which ones are useful in what situation. And I mean, usually we once at this point ask, what are the actions available to the person that you're explaining something to? Because, right. you know, we can, the answer to almost anything is, oh, like the laws of physics, uh, could have been different, and it's like, well, okay, I can't change those, right? So,
0: so that's actually just at a higher level, sort of philosophical level, really fascinating because that is true. I mean, you, you could be a sort of pseudo determinist and say, well, because at the moment of the Big Bang, particle number six hundred and seventy five was right where it was, and and all these other and everything just played out from there. But none of that information maps onto the space of possible actions
1: that we as agents can take in the world. Um, that kind of brings us back to why generative models here. So the idea is that okay. Uh, We've defined our answer. It can just like basically can be any one of these any verbal counterfactuals. Um, then we want to prioritize them by things that the user could change. And of course, usually when we're giving someone an explanation, we don't actually know what their situation is very well, right? We have to design these uh, black box systems ahead of time that will hopefully give useful explanations to a whole bunch of different people. So I think a good compromise is to at least restrict ourselves to plausible counterfactuals and say, here are other sorts of things that I would actually expect to reasonably see, um, and there were maybe I have seen before that did give different outcomes.
0: And so how do you define a plausible counterfactual? I guess that's just based on on
1: adversarial training or? No, no, uh, so probabilities are what's gonna tell us what's plausible. So uh, you know, maybe we can define plausible as something like, a, you know, meeting some threshold of, like at least some small probability of being possible. It was, uh, you know, why did my image detector uh, say this is a dog? Well, like a plausible alternative image would be one in which it's like there's the dog is replaced by like the background or something like that, or a cat or something. And like a bad explanation would be one where it's just like shows like some like white noise or some crazy impossible object or something like that. And the generative model is what's gonna constrain this uh, space of counterfactuals to be things that have like moderate probability at least some probability under our, our learned distribution over inputs.
0: Okay, and so this really is then where that generative model becomes important is in in determining what plausible mean or what things are plausible, essentially. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What kinds of ex- explanations or explainability statements can then be be made once we start using a generative model to, to create these counterfactuals and then essentially to probe a, an existing, say, classifier or regressor?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And so here, these are a little bit wide open and we have a few sort of Approaches that I think are work pretty well, but I'd say this is kind of where the field is at. in not like I think the question You're asking right now is one that's kind of not well answered by the field right now. So we have a few uh, Standard approaches. So one is to say again this like gradient based instantaneous counterfactual uh, In a recent paper for iClear we said, okay, let's ask at what region of an image if you didn't observe it like if someone just like came up to you and like you know put a hand in your face and covered up this part of the world um, like where if they covered it up would change your answer because you you know so if the idea is like if there's an empty empty field and then someone uh, puts their hand up in front of you you're not sure if there's like something behind it or not and, it, and the idea is like okay you also have to assume that they're not like trying to cover up something important because then the fact that their hands there tells you something um, so if part of the image was missing at random which part of the image would uh, being missing would most change your prediction. And and so if you kind of search over parts of the image that you could remove in this way or somehow like mask, then you end up masking the important part, like the crux of the evidence. Right. So that, that works pretty well. And the cool thing is you can actually ask the, I think it's the converse or the obverse, I forget the definition of these, where you can say, OK, yeah, if I could only see one part of the image um, and that would change my answer, which part of the image would like most change my answer if that was the only thing I saw. There
0: seemed to be a ton of implications as well for improving the quality of predictions and improving existing models. I mean, it just sounds like there's an immediate time, for example, to attention and the idea of you know where a model should be looking and where it shouldn't be. And then also, I guess, um, well, maybe related to that is the idea of what dropout strategies would be most effective. Is that is that fair to say or...?
1: Yeah, Yeah. exactly. So I think here, that's a great connection that if we were trying to train an intention system, we should be asking a similar question, which is like, where, if I did look, would most make my answer correspond to the truth or something like that?
0: What's really cool about it, too, you know, these fully convolutional networks that that do actually give you the ability to see, you know, OK, where, where is this model looking at, you know, in, in this particular image, for example, those those strategies are very architecture specific. But what strikes me as being particularly exciting about what you're working on here is, At no point did you say, oh, we're working on a convolutional network or a computer vision problem, even. Uh, This seems like it's a fully general strategy, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I should have mentioned that. So that's the that's the cool thing about these approaches is that they're sort of model agnostic um, in terms of like the model that we're trying to explain. And then also you can pretty much plug in any generative model here either. Uh, Also, I mean, uh, practically speaking, you do need pretty much everything to be differentiable if you want to make these things fast to generate explanations. Um, but yeah, the details of the particular architecture don't matter beyond that.
0: So I find that really interesting because it, it does seem like a, a major through line in all your research. Where you, when I spoke to um, to your uh, student Will uh, earlier, you know, he was he was talking about this idea of um, generalizability, essentially being able to uh, you know make generative models that could leverage some architectures that previously couldn't be leveraged through his his energy based approach, the the one that you've been exploring together. And um, it just seems like this is coming up over and over, where you know, earlier you were talking about programming languages that can propagate gradients through optimizers, just sort of like breaking a lot of the um, the shackles, the framework that we've been using for a long time in the machine learning community um, to sort of open up the space of possible optimization schemes. Is that is that sort of like the, a, a fair assessment of what your global research um, goal is?
1: Well, I'd say it's more like a research cheat code where you know, there's a, a series of papers that we could write because we had these slightly more general tools that other people, I'm, I think, you know, most of the ideas that we were writing about, I think other people had thought of them. Um, and it just was such a pain. Like, I remember explaining some of these ideas to people saying, oh, we're gonna take the gradient through the variance of our gradient estimator. And then just kind of going like, oh man, I guess if you do a stop gradient here and you, you know, initialize this thing this way and sort of imagining how they could coax like piano or like whatever package they were using at the time to do such a thing. And it's like, oh, free your mind. Like, just think about it in terms of math. Like, we're not afraid of writing the gradient in front of anything in math because we know it will exist as long as the function is differentiable. So um, I think it was one of the things where having sufficiently good tools just lets you spend more time at the conceptual level without stopping and possibly thinking like, but can I code this up in TensorFlow?
0: Right Because I guess there's um, there are two different kinds of constraints that uh, historically have been applied to machine learning models. Like one of them is uh, what, what I might think of as like an intentional architectural constraint, something like what we see with convolutional networks, where you know we recognize that that image data has this symmetry that it's translationally invariant. And so therefore, why don't we hard code essentially that symmetry as in the form of basically like a prior uh, as an architecture in our neural network? and say, okay, we'll take advantage of that, we'll spare the neural network the need to actually learn that translational invariance on the fly, and as a result, we'll essentially like give it a big leg up and make this model you know, much much faster, much more effective in that context. But then there are these other arbitrary constraints that are a little bit more subtle and less obvious that you alluded to earlier when we were talking about programming languages and the interaction between our tooling and the models that we build, and that seems like a much more pathological kind of constraint. It's not something that reflects you know what what we might assume through through reason through through sort of the logic and life experience our models could actually benefit from right
1: yeah and i want to say that i think the old guard like the original autodiff people for instance and like a lot of the programming languages community i think probably look on at the machine learning and deep learning communities with kind of thinking that we're sort of hilarious and sad for having such limited tools because they sort of already did all this uh, in the 80s and 90s and uh, for instance or in 2001, uh, Jerry Sussman and one other person, I forget, um, released this amazing book and software package called The Structure and Interpretation of Classical Mechanics, where they basically had you know, fully-fledged automatic differentiation, uh, differential equation solvers, symbolic manipulators, um, such that they could write down, for instance, like Maxwell's equations in code, and then automatically prove different uh, implications, or like, I don't know, cor- corollaries. Um, using their program transformation tools and it's just that you know i think they everything was kind of like scalar math they didn't they didn't have the hardware acceleration story and i think in general it's kind of strange how all these amazing old bits of software didn't catch on yeah but the point is that, you know all this isn't that new and i think it's probably just an artifact of the all the different sub not 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 enough people knowing enough about a bunch of different communities, and especially people in machine learning just not having a background in programming languages, uh, numerics and uh, software design for the most part.
0: Well, it's funny that you mentioned physics too, and and I, I think I, I saw um, a tweet from I think Balaji Srinivasan on on uh, well on Twitter a couple of days ago where he was talking about he he managed to mention physics and essentially machine learning or computational science and statistics uh, as being these these fields. That f- from which we essentially we see the most leverage. Or physics was one of the fields where you know if, if you did that in the early 1900s, um, you know you'd be set for life uh, workwise. And now it's sort of stats and CS, and um, and and they're, they keep coming up together over and over. And as far as I can tell, I feel like this has something to do with the fact that they're in a way very almost symmetrical or at least analogous. You know, in physics, we're outsourcing all of our compute to physicists. Human minds are trying to Come up with a feature set that we're going to exploit to derive laws and principles that can make predictions. Our predictions basically come from people. Whereas you go all the way over into machine learning, at least at the furthest extremes, where you start relaxing all these extra constraints um, and machines are doing all the optimization, we're outsourcing our compute to them. What's happening right now seems to be we're somewhere in the middle where there's a mix of like these human imposed priors. And then the compute that's being done by machines, and what you're doing here is kind of moving us more and more towards that or higher levels of abstraction, outsourcing more and more of the sort of uh, more abstract reasoning to these machines through through your algorithm.
1: Oh yeah, I, I would definitely see that. And you know, there's every like year that comes out another paper that's like, oh, automatically learning the laws of physics um, with machine learning. And I mean, of course, they're always like fairly basic proof of concepts. And I also talking, say having written such a paper and understanding its limitations very clearly. I do think it's funny though that. You know, initially, like most of the math and early software tools that machine learning used came from physics. And like statistical mechanics in particular. And then I think just because there's been so much money and uh, talent pouring into machine learning and deep learning in the last few years, that now it's kind of reversed where this community is the one that developed this new generation of software. and Well, I won't say this community, I'll just say at least uh, there's been a new generation of software and hardware tools that's been developed for deep learning. That now is becoming general enough to be applied back to physics.
0: Yes, actually, yeah. Before before I dropped out, I remember um, I was doing a PhD in physics and dropped out two years in. But right before I dropped out, we were just starting to see that we were starting to see people say, "Oh, you know what? Like, you know, we could use uh, well genetic algorithms for this, or we could use this this hardware, whether it was GPUs or whatever else for for other applications." So. Yeah, really cool to see some of that crossover starting to happen. Cross-pollination, always a good thing. Thanks so much, David, for, for all of this. I think we've, we've covered a lot of ground and a lot of really cool insights uh, along the way. Do you mind sharing your um, your Twitter handle?
1: Sure. It's just David Duvenaud, my full name. So um, I guess you have to spell my name, which is uh, my last name is D-U-V-E-N-A-U-D.
0: And um, we'll provide a link to that in the blog post that'll accompany this podcast as well. Uh, David, thanks so much for joining us for this. This was great.
1: My pleasure, Jeremy.